How's it? How's it going? How's it how's it been? Have you been good? Well, I'm glad. I have decided that I absolutely cannot make any promises on this podcast because every time that I do it just I just get knocked down in some way, shape or form. So from now on, no more promises. You dig? Anyway, welcome back to Cup of Taboo with me, Tyler. I hope that you are doing smashingly. I have been not so good. It's been, it's been a, again, it's been a time. So after Halloween time, I think I was just like ultra super uber duper stressed. And I think my body was just not having the best of times. So basically, I... Basically, what happened is, uh, I think my body was a bit run down, and I went out two weekends ago to go watch a concert. Um, it was a local band, Postdorf, and yeah, we were like, "Frick, we haven't been out in like two years, basically, to go watch any live acts. Let's just go." So we went, and I got, you know, I drank a little bit, but even so, like, I was fine. And <laughs> anyway, on the Monday, which was voting day, I thought I was just like ridiculously hungover, which I think I was mildly hungover, but I really wasn't feeling lacquer, but it was okay. So I went and I voted still. I was like, you know what? I got to do my, my duty. I've got to do my job. And then I went <laughs> home and on Tuesday I went to work and I was still not feeling good. And I was like, oh my gosh, is this what they mean when they say hangovers last for three days? Oh my goodness, I just can't even. But it, like, it was always getting worse. So I was like, this is not okay. So yeah. Anyway, long story short, I ended up in the hospital with some horrific stomach thing. I don't even know. Uh, I've been told many different things, but like basically my colon was just very unhappy. So I was in, in the hospital for a couple of days and I just was not having a good time. So I'm so sorry that these episodes have been so late. I have been working at trying to get a couple up and going so that, you know, I can get them out quicker. So hopefully that'll happen. I'm not making promises. Like I said, I refuse. Shan't do it. Because every time I make a promise, something goes terribly wrong. So now I'm just not going to promise anything at all. I hope you are ready for your weekly dose, almost weekly dose, of strange, dark, and terrible, served in your cup of taboo. Warning, the following episode contains graphic descriptions of violence, rape, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Today I will be talking about Moses Sitole, who is one of South Africa's most notable serial killers. He was a bad guy, or is a bad guy, he's still alive, but he did a lot of, he, he, he did a lot of bad. He did a lot of terrible, terrible things, but now... Let me just like start off like with the overview of the country and our relationship with serial killers. South Africa has a lot of violent crime. And I mean, a lot of that happens to be murders and that happens to happen every day. 
but we don't really have a lot of really well-known serial killers that, for example, the USA has. But, you know, if you want to look at some interesting stats, you can go to an, a website called crimestatssa.com. But that's where I was, so I was just looking at all the stats and stuff for South Africa. So, I mean, we obviously have had serial killers and there have been some terrible ones, but it's not like, you know, you don't hear about them all the time. Does that make sense? But basically, we don't have, you know, they're, they're not very common, I don't think. We have a lot of people who murder and a lot of people who do terrible things and cause terrible harm. But we don't really have a lot of these weird sickos who like plan meticulously and whatnot. But anyway, I'm going to quickly give you some stats just just for interest's sake and just because it's, I thought it was fascinating. I'm going to give you stats from April 2021 to June 2021. So in this quarter, 5,760 people were murdered. There were 10,006 rape cases that were made. 37,530 people were assaulted with the intent to do bodily harm, and there were 5,145 attempted murders. So these are just the violent crime stats for the three months of April and June of this year. So, I mean, as you can see, it is quite a lot. And to put that in perspective, um, in America, which has a population size of around 330 million people, there was a murder rate of 21,570 in 2020. And in South Africa, with only 59 million people, uh, we had 21,325 murders. So we had just over 100 less murders for a much smaller population size. So that's just a small breakdown of what the crime in the country looks like. You know, the murder count is high, but the serial killers, they're, def they're, they're lesser known and uh, compared to their overseas counterparts. But that's not to say that there aren't serial killers, because... There definitely is. Moses Atole was one of them. So um, I also just want to quickly make a quick distinction that needs to be made between serial killer, spree killer, and mass murderer. So basically, a mass murderer is someone who kills more than four people at one location during one continuous period of time, whether that be one day or over a few days in one location. They would be considered a mass murderer. So someone, for example, that would kill their family or somebody who bombs an office, something along those lines. So for a famous example, uh, that would be Richard Speck. What he did is he tortured and raped and killed eight student nurses in Chicago in 1966. So he did this over the course of one night in their dormitory. So over one period of time, it was one event in one place. Then a spree killer is a person who kills more than two people, but in more than one location. So these are also referred to as rampage killers because there is no cooling off period between the murders. So often spree killers are either called serial killers or mass murderers because, you know, there is a bit of ambiguity to it because it's quite difficult to say how long a cooling off period needs to be and it's quite difficult to distinguish so yeah that's that's spree killers and then serial killers are people who kill more than three people but each victim is considered a separate event so they will be in different locations at different periods of time with cooling off periods in between some of their victims often often serial killers uh, specifically also choose their victims and you know 
a characteristic of their victim. So whether it be a woman or well, whether it be woman or woman with brown hair or um or men or you know they have a specific victim type and they often plan their crimes in advance. So in 1988, Ronald Holmes, who was a criminologist at the University of Louisville, Louisville, identified four different types of serial killers. So they are the visionary. This person is usually psychotic. They hear voices and they have visions that tell them that they have to kill certain kinds of people. Um, so for an example of this, that would be Son of Sam. He was supposedly told by his neighbor's dog that he had to kill people, and so he did. The next kind of killer is, oh, sorry, serial killer is mission-oriented. This person targets a specific group of people who they believe are unworthy of living on this planet, and the world would be better off without them. So an example would be a guy named Joseph Paul Franklin, who killed 12 black males who had white girlfriends. And he was like, that's just not okay. This is just totally not on. So that's mission-oriented. Uh, another one would also be kill uh, men who kill prostitutes. So like Jack the Ripper, that was a mission-oriented, well, they believe, killer. The next type of killer, uh, serial killer, is the hedonistic killer. These ones are the scariest ones to me. So these killers kill for the thrill of it. Just because they like it and it brings them some kind of feeling. Generally sexual arousal. So they, they enjoy it. They have fun. Jeffrey Dahmer is an example of a hedonistic killer. And the final killer on this list, or the final type of serial killer on this list, is power-oriented. So this killer will kill to exert power over their victims. So they're not considered psychotic, so they're not hearing voices and seeing visions, but they are obsessed with capturing and controlling their victims, as well as forcing them to obey their commands. So they can also, they also often have a sexual element to their kills, so their sexual element is also a part of that power. And Ted Bundy is an example of a power-oriented serial killer. Okay, so now that I've given you the breakdown of different types of killers, which I thought was just quite interesting, I'm going to go into Moses Sitole. Moses Sitole was born on the 17th of November 1964 in Fosloris, a Transvaal province, which is now called Gauteng. He was also known as the ABC killer, the South African strangler, and the Gauteng killer. He killed 38 people over a 10-month period. So that's a shit ton of people over a very short amount of time. He was called the ABC killer because his kills were in the areas of Attridgeville, Boxburg, and Cleveland. ABC, Attridge, anyway, you get it, you got it. You know, you can do letters. Moses was born to a Simon Tangawira Sitole and Sophie Sitole. He was one of five children, and as we have seen in so many cases before, he did not really have a good childhood life. His father Simon died when he was only five years old, and his mother, who was now a single mom, she was like, I can't look after five kids. So what she did is she took them to the local police station and like, left them there. This was when Simon passed away. So basically the police put the kids in orphanages and Moses ended up in an orphanage in KwaZulu-Natal where he later revealed that he was wildly mistreated. I'm sort of assuming that that means he was probably beaten, neglected and probably raped because unfortunately so many of our orphanages are underfunded and overpopulated so a lot of the children do not get the care that they so desperately need, especially during those formative years of their lives. So after three years of living in the orphanage, Moses ran away and tried to live with his mother again, who turned him away, again, 
So again, that also contributes. Now he's like still a child. He's still in, like, still growing up. He's still forming opinions, and his mother turns him away again, which is again a form of rejection. It's just in his head that's woman reject bad. So he went back to the orphanage, and then eventually moved in. Well, tried to move in with his older brother. And he did, and then after that ended up working menial jobs and farms, and he actually ended up working in the gold mines in Johannesburg. So this all went down during apartheid, which was obviously an absolutely terrible time for black people in South Africa. So it wasn't really, you know, they the black people in South Africa weren't really looked after at all back then, and in terms of reporting on crimes committed by or to black people, also it wasn't done in in a way that it should have been done, but yes. So Moses was said to have a very violent outlook towards women, which some believe is obviously because of, like I said, his mother's abandonment in his formative years. He was also apparently quite sexually advanced from quite an early age. So he had many, like many relationships, but all of them were very short-lived. He was just like, hey, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, next, you know? So he was considered charming, ladies' man. He was, you know, like attractive, friendly, very nice, apparently. And he also, like, really helped a lot of children on the streets to find their parents. He was, you know, he seemed like a decent guy, is what I'm trying to, trying to say. You know, very similar to a certain Ted Bundy. So it was said that, um, you know, beneath this sweet exterior... There was a monster on the inside, obviously. So he started raping women in 1987. At least this is what it was reported as. And in 1988, he started a relationship with a 17-year-old girl named Sibongile Nkosi in Boxburg. And apparently this was not a very good relationship. He didn't treat her very well. And he used to like, you know, there was a bit of abuse and whatnot. And then in 1989, he actually raped a lady named... Buyiswa Swakamisa, and what he did is he threatened her with a panga, which is basically like a machete, and she reported the rape, <laughs> good for her, which resulted in Moses getting sentenced for six years in jail. And now what happened was, when she reported it, she actually, what she saw him on the street, and she called the cops, and they came, they arrested him, they actually put her in the car with him, and he said to her while they were in the car, I should have killed you then. But anyway... So now he was arrested for six years and, well, he was sentenced for six years in jail and he kept saying he was innocent, he didn't do anything wrong, but he still went to prison where he then later said that that is where he was actually turned into a murderer. He was released in 1993 for good behavior, which is kind of terrifying because it's, I mean, first of all, that's only, what, like four years in prison for raping a woman? I mean, that's, no, no that's not good enough. But then he got out and he killed so many people. He may have learned that, you know, leaving a rape victim alive could get you jailed. So maybe he was like, hmm, when I get out of here, when I rape women, because I'm going to carry on raping women because I've learned nothing, I'm going to kill them when I'm done because I don't want to go back to prison, basically. So while Moses was in prison, he met a woman named Martha and they began a relationship. And when he was released, he moved in with her and her parents. So she fell pregnant and he, you know, it just seemed to be a good time. So he felt, she fell pregnant with his child and he started a shell corporation called Youth Against Human Abuse, which was not a real company. 
and this is how he actually ended up luring his victims in in the future. So like I said, this guy killed a lot of people and unfortunately they weren't very well documented so I won't be able to give you like a proper breakdown of each victim and what happened, you know, who they were and all that kind of stuff. I'll just sort of be able to give you a timeline of events. But basically this absolute monster only cared for his own needs. He didn't give a damn about anyone or anything else. As long as he could get his dick wet and get his rocks off, he didn't care about what happened to anyone. In July of 1994, when his now wife, Martha, was five months pregnant, Sitole lured 18-year-old Maria Moname to Cleveland under the guise of a position at his company, which, like I said, didn't actually exist. He raped and strangled her with his own hands, and then he reportedly wrote on her skin three messages. They were, these are all in quotes. She a beach. Spelt beach like the sea. I am no fighting with you, please. And we must stay here for as long as you don't understand. I don't know, these seem like some desperate messages, and I don't, like, they don't make much sense to me, but they believed the cops that, well, the people who saw these messages believed that they were for law enforcement, and they don't happen on any other victims, which is interesting. I don't, like, I don't understand why they wouldn't happen on any other victims, but that was his first victim, and that's what he, he wrote on her legs. So, basically, every rape and kill that this man did was aimed at Buyiswa Swakisma, uh, the lady who reported him for raping her. And he did actually mention this later on in, in interviews, that it was almost like a revenge thing against her. So what he would do is he would target young, unemployed black women with the promise of a job at his fake company. He would get like even proper letters typed up, printed, like it, to make the whole thing seem legit. I mean, he was proper psychopath like that. Like he got letterheads typed. He had proper everything seemed so legit. He had he had it put in the newspaper. Like this is how far he went. And then when these ladies responded to him or would agree to meet him for an interview, he would lure them into a field saying, oh, it's just a shortcut to the office. And then he would then tell them how he was wronged and how he would be raping them and killing them. He would bind their hands and he strangled them by using their underwear or their clothing. You know, it sort of evolved as I'll, I'll be explaining that later. So an, a lot of his victims' faces or upper bodies were then also covered with their clothing, which was weighed down by rocks. So, and that's sort of like, I think, as they, they say in a lot of things, that that's almost a sign of remorse, which is interesting. But, I mean, there's no way of really saying with this. So during these killings, there was another man named David Selepe who was arrested on suspicion of killing women in the same way. So he was arrested in the Cleveland area after he was caught using one of the victim's credit cards at an ATM. So now it is believed that this victim was Sitoli's victim. Um, she was one of his mistresses, but Selepe was then brought in for it. So Selepe was actually shot and killed by a policeman when he allegedly attacked the policeman while he was showing where some bodies were hidden. So it's very confusing. It's very difficult to say who was responsible for what. But at this point, they believed that Selepe had committed all the crimes, you know, all of these stranglings. Um, however, obviously, once he was killed, the, the woman kept dying. So they were like, ah, flip. Maybe it wasn't him. 
I, I mean, it is said that Celepe did kill people, but then they realized that, okay, this, these crimes were not him because obviously he was dead. So in December of 1994, Sitole's daughter was born, and only months after the child was born, him and Martha got a divorce, which led to Moses actually becoming homeless and living on the streets. So he would sleep at train stations, which also meant that, you know, a lot of the women that were found were found near to train tracks and train stations. Easy way to get around, easy way to conceal bodies. That's what he would do. While the police were still trying to connect the crimes to Selepe, on the 4th of January, 1995, a body who is now Selepe is dead. So they were still trying to connect which crimes he had committed. You know, they were, they were just trying to do their thing. And now on the 4th of January, 1995, a body was found in a field. She was half nude and strangled to death. And she actually remains unidentified to this day. On the 9th of February, 1995, a second body was found in a, in a vault. She was completely naked, but her clothes were covering her upper body and they were weighed down with rocks. Her fingerprints were used to identify her as Beauty Nukusoku. She had gone missing in January. On the morning of the 6th of March, some construction workers were digging a ditch in Attridgeville when they saw some breasts, some women's breasts, protruding from the soil. So they uncovered the body of a 25-year-old Sarah Matlakala Mokono, who had disappeared only three days earlier when she went to meet with someone who had promised her work. On the 12th of April 1995, another body was found in Attridgeville and she was identified as Leta Nomtandanzo Ndlagamandla. She was 25 years old. Her hands were tied behind her back with a bra and she was strangled with a ligature. Her clothes were found in the area, however her panties were never recovered. The next day, the body of a two-year-old boy was found near where Letta's body was found, and it was discovered that this was actually her son, Sibusisu, and it was said that Letta had left earlier in April to meet a man about a job offer, and she had no one to leave her son with, so she took him with her. The coroner was unable to determine how Sibusisu died, but he did have an injury to his head, so they sort of assumed that that had something to do with it. On the 13th of May, Esther Moshibudi Manecha's body was found in a cornfield. She was 29 years old. Her lower body was nude and she had been strangled with her clothing. She was seen the previous evening when she left a cafe on her way home. The next body was found a month later. However, five women had gone missing in the area in that time frame. So the body that was found was that of Francina Nomsa Sitebe, who was 25 years old. She was found sitting next to a tree on the 13th of June. So she was wearing a dress, however, upon closer inspection, it was found that her panties and a handbag strap had been tied around her neck and then around the tree, which strangled her. And I mean, just imagine what a haunting sight that is. You see this lady just sitting peacefully under a tree, and when you get closer, she's actually tied to the tree and dead. That's it's terrifying. It's terrible. On the 16th of June, Elizabeth Granny Matetsa's naked body was found in Roslyn, which is close to Pretoria. She was only 19 years old and she was last seen alive on the 25th of May. On the 22nd of June, a body was found raped and strangled. Her ID document was found nearby and she was identified as 30-year-old Ernestina Mohadi Masebo. 
On the 24th of June, Nikki Wedeko's body was found in Attridgeville. She had been missing since the 7th of April. And the last time she was seen, she was on her way to meet someone who had an employment opportunity for her. Her hands had been tied together with her panties, and unfortunately wild dogs had gotten to her body, so it was badly torn up. Her skull was found the next day, 130 feet from her torso. She was strangled with her pantyhose, and it was pulled so tightly that some bone fragments were actually found in the pantyhose. Her body was badly sexually assaulted, and I won't mention what happened to her because it's really just not lacquer. I'm just going to say it was badly assaulted. And her wedding ring was still on her finger, and that was identified by her husband. So there was a moment, a brief, like a, a small little moment in July of 1995, where Moses was nearly caught, but they, they just missed him. So on July 17th, 1995, a man named Absalom Sangweni, who lived in a caravan park in Boxburg, saw a man and a woman walking in the felt. So he called out to them to be like, hey, guys, there's a fence up ahead. So just, you know, you won't be able to go further. But the man responded. He was like, ah, I know the area, man. It's fine. So they carried on. So, But Absalom over here, my dude, he kept an eye on the area. He was like, mm, I don't trust this. Mm-mm. And sometime later, like, so he like, he was sitting on his little stoop and he saw, like he, he was looking in the area. Sometime later, the man reemerged without the woman and he like looked super sketchy. Like he looked like he was like, you know, like twitchy kind of thing. Like he had done something wrong and he ran away. So at this point, Absalom was like, mm, yeah, you see, I didn't trust that guy. So he went into the vault and he saw the woman's body lying there and he could see that she was dead. So he ran to a nearby supermarket and he called the police. And when the police got there, she was actually still warm, but they were unable to resuscitate her. She had been strangled with her belt and she was later identified as Josephine Mansali Mlangeli. She was a 25-year-old mother of four and she had gone to meet someone about a potential job offer. You're seeing the pattern now because it's it just it's it's there. Unfortunately, Absalom was not be able to give a description of the man to the police because he was just too far away. I mean, if I had to try and give a description of anyone that's further than one meter away from me, I would be screwed because my eyesight's that bad. So, unfortunately, he couldn't see the guy properly, so he couldn't give a description. So, on that same day that um, Josephine's body was found, a special investigation team was put together, which included uh, Mickey Pistorius, who was a police psychologist who also happened to be South Africa's first profiler. Good for you, girl. So it was a task force that was put together, including her. And they were initially confused because they looked at the victims in the order that they found them. And it was like, everything was slightly different. Some were bound, some were not. Some were this, some were that. So they were like, ah, maybe there's more than one killer. We, they, they didn't know. So anyway, the next day, the body of a Granny Dimakatsu Ramela was found in Pretoria West, she was lying face down, fully clothed, and she was only 21 years old. And the garrote that was used to strangle her was still around her neck. She had disappeared on the 23rd of May. On the 26th of July, Mildred Ntia Lepule was found in a canal near Pretoria, um, near Onestapuert. She was only 28 years old, and she was last seen when her husband brought her to the area to meet someone about a job. 
Her pantyhose were used to strangle her and her underwear was actually pulled over her face. Like I said, it's a, it's a weird, I don't know if it's a sign of remorse, a sign of hair, like dehumanizing. It's very difficult to tell. So at this time, Mickey Pistorius, the psychologist profiler lady, arranged the victims in the order that they were actually killed and she actually saw a pattern start to emerge. She was like, detective. I just think of criminal minds every time. But anyway, so she was seeing how the killer was actually evolving. So instead of looking at the victims in the order that they were found, they actually managed to arrange them in the order that they were, they were killed. And she saw that the killer was actually refining his techniques with every kill. And he was, you know, slowly building on them, which is bad. It is a bad thing. So initially the victims were not bound. And then their hands were tied in front with a piece of their clothing. Then their hands were secured behind their backs. And, you know, similarly, the first few victims were throttled. And then the killer began to use ligature to strangle them. You know, bra, piece of clothing, whatever. And then that progressed to a garrote, where he would use a stick to wind up the clothing, clothing around their necks, which provided increased control to the killer. So she was like, oh, damn, this is not good at all. Now, obviously, the police are still doing their investigations in the background. And on the 8th of August, another body was found near Ornestapurt again, which is again in Pretoria. This was the body of Elsie Korti Masango, who was only 25 years old. She had gone missing on the 14th of July. And the next day, another body was found in the same area. But this body was burnt beyond recognition. And they assumed that that happened when a felt fire went through the area. And she still has never been identified, and it was not known how long she was there for. On the 23rd of August, Oscarina Ryokazi Jakalese's body was found near Boxburg. She was 30 years old, and she had gone missing on the 8th of August. On the 28th and the 30th of August, two more bodies were found near Onestapurt. Uh, neither body has yet been identified. And at this point, due to the increased police presence the killer actually returned to cleveland where another body was found on the 12th of september this is also an unidentified victim it's it's very unfortunate there are like there i think there's 11 or 12 unidentified victims in this case which is it's i it's shame it's terrible i don't understand it. it's shocking i don't understand how people you know how are they unidentified but anyway so, four days later, the first body was found at Van Dyke Mine, or Van Dijk? Van Dijk. I'm going to go with Van Dijk Mine, near Boxburg. Nine more bodies would be found during the next two days. <laughs> so, at this point, the East Rand cops and the Pretoria cops decided to join forces, like, nee, 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 boo! I just touched tips of my fingers. That was them joining forces. Because they realized the severity of what they had on their hands. They were like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? So at the Van Dijk mine, they made sure that the media and the police presence was felt. So that the killer would be like, okay. You know, they, they wanted to put pressure on the killer to mess up, basically. They even got, like, even the former president, Nelson Mandela, went to the site. He met all the detectives on the scene. He pleaded with the public to try and come forward with stuff. Like, it was... They were like on it. They were trying their best. So, but at this site, at the Van Dijk Mine, there were some items of ritualistic significance at the scene, which included black and red candles, mirrors, feathers, knives, lingerie, etc. So they were all believed to be related to like traditional healing, Sangoma stuff, but they, you know, it was investigated, but they weren't really sure. 
So they wanted to see whether these killings at the mines were Muti killings, which is a thing. I didn't know it was a thing. So basically a Muti killing is where a Sangoma murders a person for Muti and it's like, ugh. But anyway, but Mickey Pistorius could see that the Atrigeville killer's signature was in every single victim here at the Van Dyke mines in Boxburg. She knew it was him. So one thing that bothered the investigators the most was that the killer had now combined his methods of binding and killings, uh, killing in his last four victims so that the victim could essentially strangle herself the more that she struggled. So that was like, they were like, oh no, he's evolving. We cannot, like, we need to stop him. So basically, the victims at the Van Dijk mines were Trapina Mokotzi, who was 26 years old. She went missing on the 15th of August. Then there was uh, Nelesiwe Nontobeko Zulu, who was also 26 years old. And she was last seen on the 4th of September, and she was on her way to go meet someone for a job. The next victim was Amelia Dikamakatsu Rapodile, who was 43 years old. She disappeared on the 7th of September after she left her place of employment in Johannesburg at the airport um, in the company of a man who had promised her a better job. Mm. She was found with her hands tied behind her back to her neck with her pantyhose. Her bank card had actually been used to withdraw money three times later on the night of her disappearance in Germiston, so that's something. The next victim was Monica Gabisile Villacazi, who left her grandmother's house on the 12th of September to go looking for work. She left her four-year-old son in her mother's, well, in, her, in his grandmother's care, and she was 31 years old. Next was Hazel Nosipo Madikizela, who was 21 years old. She was found with her hands tied to her neck with underwear, and she was last seen by her parents, also in Germiston. Next up was Sidi Matella, who was identified more than a year later, in November 1996. She was originally from Lesotho, and she was 45 years old when she died. The other four women who were found were all unidentified, and they were just given numbers at, at the mortuary. All we know about them is how they died, unfortunately. So they believe that these killings actually had nothing to do with the Cleveland murders because now obviously Selepe was dead. But they did admit that they thought there was a connection between these murders and the Attridgeville ones. So a reward was offered for $82,000 for any information leading to an arrest. They also realized that they may need some international help at this point. They were like, ah, where is this is bad. So they called in Dr. Robert Ressler, the f retired FBI agent and probably the founding father of profiling. I think I mentioned him in the Strangler episodes, the Dark Strangler. He coined the term serial killer. It was him. So anyway, Dr. Robert Ressler was like, I'm, I'm coming now. And he flew to South Africa on the 23rd of September, 1995, to assist with the profile for the investigation. So the profile that they came up with, well, what they came up with at this point was as follows. Well, the, the case, the, the, their findings were as follows. There had been three discrete locations where the bodies were found. Eight women were found in Unia Atridgeville, along with a two-year-old boy. Six women were found in the area surrounding Ornestapuert and 12 women were found in the Boxburg area. 
there was one woman found near Cleveland. The profilers believe that the murders of these 27 women were related. In addition, they also believe that more than one killer may have been involved, working together on at least some of the murders. Uh, the location seemed to have been very carefully chosen, and the killers were killer slash killers were quite familiar with them. Although the sites were remote and relatively safe in terms of being discovered in the act, they were still easily accessible by means of rail and road. And despite indications that the women were assaulted and killed at the scenes where they were found, there was very little evidence. This is an important thing. He did not leave a lot of evidence, which indicated an organized, intelligent offender. He was also growing in both confidence and arrogance. Whereas the original Atridgeville victims had been scattered, the Ornestaport victims had been left closer together, and the Boxwick victims were literally left on top of each other. There was no attempt at concealment at all. Victimology revealed middle-class women in their 20s and early 30s who looked after their appearance. Most of them had been unemployed or looking for better employment. This seemed to have been the killer's approach, since many victims, relatives, friends, or co-workers told of appointments with a man about a job offer. He had probably been affronted and hurt by a woman who was now represented by the victims. He was raping and killing her over and over again, which was why the victims were very similar to each other. So that was what they came up with, Robert Ressler and the rest of the team. So they were like, okay, this is what we got, which I think is actually very accurate in terms of, you know, he was hurt by a woman, you know, it's very interesting. So at the mine scene, at the Fundake mine scene, a handbag was recovered, and in the handbag was ID documents which enabled them to identify, you know, the victim quite quickly. She was Amelia Rapodile, and the police traced her last known movements, and they found out that she had had an appointment with a man named Moses Sitole on the 7th of September. The detectives then got information on the business that Sitole supposedly ran, which was that Youth Against Human Abuse, where he had offered Amelia a position, and they tracked the number from that organization, which then led them to a quasi-Sitole, who was Moses' sister. She told the police that she did not know where he was, he didn't live there, like she had nothing to do with him at that point. And when Trapina Mohatsi was... Mohotsi, sorry, was identified at the site shortly afterwards, the detectives knew that they were onto the right guy because Trapina was, uh, worked as a laundry worker at a place called Kids Haven, which was an organization that helped street children in Benoni, and one of the other workers there told the police that a man had come around and told them about possible jobs at his organization, Youth Against Human Abuse. He spoke to Trapina a bit, and she was very excited, and she agreed to like meet with him to have this interview of sorts. So it was confirmed by a witness that Moses had actually returned to Kids Haven with two teenagers that were to, that were to be placed in the home, and then again with a newspaper article about his own organization. Trufina went missing a few days later. Even though there was considerable coverage of the coverage of the case, a reward for information and a plea from President Mandela, the killer still struck again. One week after the bodies were discovered at the mine, 20-year-old Agnes Sibongele Mbuli went missing. Her body was found on the 3rd of October at a train station near Benoni. On the same day that her body was found, a man called the newspaper called The Star and he spoke to a reporter named Tamsin De Beer. He said that his name was Joseph Mahwena and that he was the Gauteng serial killer. 
He said, in quotes, I am the man that is so highly wanted, end quotes. He told her that he wanted to surrender. The reporter typed out the conversation and contacted the police. The man phoned another three times during October and these calls were recorded by police. In these four conversations, Joseph, or Moses, provided some detailed information about the murders. He said that he began killing after a woman had falsely accused him of rape, for which he was convicted and imprisoned. While in jail, he suffered abuse at the hands of fellow prisoners. In quotes, he said to her, I force a woman to go where I want, and when I go there, I tell them, do you know what? I was hurt, so now I'm doing it now. Then I kill them. End quotes. He stated that he used the victim's clothing to strangle them and preferred underwear because it left no fingerprints. He had used an area near Boxburg for an extended period, but of course, anyone reading the newspapers knew this by now. Continuing, however, he said that these women saw the other victims before they died. Although he accepted responsibility for the murders in Pretoria, Atridgeville and Boxburg, he denied, denied any involvement in the Cleveland killings. He also definitely did, like, he fully denied killing Letta, the lady, and her two-year-old son, specifically the son, stating that he loved children. So he also provided some other specifics, including the location of a body that the police hadn't yet found. And, you know, at this point, the police were like, okay, this is probably the killer. So on the 9th of October, the body of an unidentified woman was found at a train station near Germiston. And on the 11th of October, Beauty Ntombi Ndebeni's body was found also in Germiston. A comb had been used to tighten her pantyhose around her neck. Tamsin Debeer, now working with the police, tried to organize a meetup with the caller at a police at not at a police station at a train station but this obviously like this unfortunately fell through and i mean like that's brave i would not have the balls to do that to like go through and meet this dude who you know has been killing women one after the other basically so because it fell through they decided that they needed to be more aggressive they needed like a better idea they were like you know what we are going to post his picture in the newspaper. I mean, nowadays it would just be all over social media immediately. But anyway, back then they were like, we're going we're gonna to publish this picture in the newspaper. And on the 13th of October, Moses Sitole's face was pasted in the Star newspaper. The next day, unfortunately, after that photo was released, a body of another unidentified victim was found at the village main reef mine. Shoelaces had been used to bind her neck to a tree. So now I'm going to go on to his capture, which... Just if it's, you know, <laughs> thankfully he got captured. I, I, who knows how long he would have gone on for. So just a few days after his picture was published in the papers, Moses contacted his sister's husband, Maxwell, and he told Maxwell that he needed a gun to protect himself, and he arranged to meet Maxwell at the Mintex factory in Benoni. At this point, his sister contacted the police. Maxwell also told the detectives, like, what Moses wanted, and they then decided to make a plan. So the detectives arranged to have Inspector Francis Mulovedzi pose as a security guard at the factory on the night that the meeting was to take place. So at 9pm on the 18th of October 1995, Moses arrived at the factory and asked for Maxwell. Now, the other security guards didn't know that Francis was undercover. They just saw him as the new guy. So they were like, hey, you go fetch Maxwell. And he was like, no, but I... I don't, I don't want to go fetch Maxwell. I, I don't know how. I just I do not understand. They were like, just go fetch him. And he was like, but like he didn't want to let Moses out of his sight. 
So obviously this little weird argument that happened between Francis and the rest of the guards made Moses like a little bit suspicious, so he decided to flee. At this point, like Francis chased after him into an alleyway and he drew his gun. He said, I'm police. I'm police. Stop. Stop what you're doing. And he fired two warning shots. So Moses was like, no, <laughs> um, no. Apparently, according to Francis, he turned around and ran towards the detective wielding an axe. At this point, Fran Francis was feeling threatened. So he shot at Moses and he did in the leg specifically and he just apparently wouldn't stop and apparently hit Francis in the hand on with the axe but he ended up shooting him in the leg and the stomach so after this he was uh, Moses was taken to the hospital and he was operated on the next day so at this point the police are like please just don't let him die like David Selepe died we're going to be in a lot of trouble if Moses also dies now in like the same investigation of these murders and also they wanted to find out what the heck was going on, you know? So he was then transferred to one military hospital in Pretoria, which is where all of the politicians and important people go if they need medical care. So it, you must know it's some of the best medical care in the country because the security there is so much better. So they said that the security was needed not because they were worried of him fleeing because <laughs> he was too injured, but more to stop the angry community members from getting to him and killing him. Because now at this point, people knew. They were like, oh, damn, it's Moses, who was the nice guy, supposedly, who helped children in the street. Anyway, on the 23rd of October, he was charged with 29 counts of murder. He was unable to attend like this court appearance, obviously due to his injuries. So he was still in hospital, and at this time, the, the cops were trying to talk to him while he was in his bed to see what he had to say, but he would not talk to them until a female detective came into the room when suddenly he was like, spilling the beans. He was like, oh, okay, actually, you're a chick. I'll talk to you. For some, It's interesting. It's so interesting. Because like he wants to murder a woman, but yet he'll only speak to a woman openly. It's just bizarre. So anyway... It is alleged that while he described his crimes to her, uh, he would he would sometimes masturbate, which gross. That's you, just, just psycho. But that was only in one source, so I can't say that it's fact. But I mean, I did read it, so I'm just gonna put it out there. So basically, he said that he would only attack during the day, and he would only rape the pretty ones. That was his words, which also gross. You're disgusting. You should. I can't. This guy. He's disgusting. He also stated that he did not like blood at all, which is why he was strangling his victims and that he would masturbate while his victims died. So he said to her, if there was blood at the scene, it wasn't me. That's how you know it was a copycat or whatever. Because he, he made a few claims that there was copycats and this and this and that. But anyway, on the 3rd of November, Moses was released from the hospital and transported to Boxburg Prison, where he had actually spent those years earlier for raping a woman. Uh, there he was kept in a solitary cell until his trial, so it was just less than a year that he was kept in solitary. But over the next couple of days, he was taken to point out the scenes where he had murdered his victims. On the 6th of November, he took them to Hartfontein Park, mine dumps where they discovered his next victim who is still unidentified and this was his final victim he was taken to be seen whether the police had injured him because obviously he made claims that he was intimidated and the police forced him to talk and injured him and so he was taken to a, a pathologist and she said no the, the, besides him being shot 
on the day that he was caught. He was never intimidated. He was never, like, there's no injuries other than that. So he then appeared in court on the 13th of November, which was then postponed. And on the 5th of December, he returned to court and his lawyer requested that he get a psychiatric evaluation because he stated that Moses had head injuries from previous assaults and boxing matches, which rendered him not well in the head. So, you know, he was, he was too unwell to, you know, he was psychologically unwell. So he can't be, he's unfit to stand trial. But I mean, if he was so psychologically unwell and unaware, why did he lure his victims with such an elaborate scheme? Why did he cover his tracks so well? Why was he so good at like getting away? But anyway, I digress. He was then moved to Krugersdorp Prison, which Krugersdorp is the center of the universe. Let me just put it out there. Anyone has a story about Krugersdorp, it's a fact. It's, it's a straight fact. Just putting it there. I'm going to carry on now. So Krugersdorp Prison is close to Stadtfontein uh, Psychiatric Hospital, which is a creepy place. I actually wanted to see if I can do like a, a whole episode on that. But anyway... There he would be tested and monitored to see if he was fit to stand trial. And on the 6th of March, 1996, the psychiatric reports were completed and the findings were that he was fit to stand trial. On the 20th of May, Sitole appeared in Pretoria High Court, where the trial was set to begin five months later. On the 30th of September, it was announced in the papers that he would be charged with 38 counts of murder, 40 counts of rape and 6 counts of robbery. Four of the murder charges were women who they believed they had incorrectly attributed to David Silepe. So, on the 21st of October, in court, Moses Sitole was charged with the rapes of 40 women, the murders of 37 women and one child, and six counts of robbery. He pleaded not guilty with a big grin on his face, which is just freaky. Like, he's got this big smile. Like, he's, he's got a huge smile. So, he would sit in the court and just be like, not guilty, with this big creepy smile. So now I'm not going to go into what happened at the trial. If you'd like to hear what happened there, let me know. And I'll I'll make an episode just for that. But it's just it's too long and drawn out. But the basis of it is that on the 4th of December 1997, Justice David Curlewis was ready to pass judgment on Moses Sitole. And he was found guilty on all counts. It took three hours for the verdict to be read. And the sentencing, which only happened the next day, was as follows. He got 12 years for each of the 40 rapes. 50 years for each of the 38 murders and 5 years for each robbery. So this adds up to 2,410 years in prison. These sentences would not run concurrently and the judge recommended no possibility of parole for at least 930 years. The judge stated that he would have had no problem imposing the death penalty if it had been, if it was still a viable option. But he did not have faith in the system and the prison boards and whatnot because with the death penalty, Moses would have been up for parole in 25 years. And he just, he said he wouldn't risk that. He wanted Moses to die in prison. He didn't want him to see the outside world again. So Moses was taken to CMAX, which is the maximum security section of the Pretoria Central Prison. And it is the highest security cell block in South Africa. There he would be spending his time with 94 of South Africa's most dangerous criminals. Each prisoner is only allowed one hour of day one hour per day outside their cell and only three visits per month. So Sitole was diagnosed with AIDS and at the time of his trial, it was estimated that he would only live another five to eight years. But because of the fact that the world is so messed up, he receives much better medical care in prison than most of the population receives 
all free of charge to him, all charged to the taxpayer. So he's doing he's doing well, as far as I could find out. Um, he is still alive, and there isn't really much information on him currently, other than that he is still in prison, and he will die in prison, and that's where he deserves to die. So that is that. That's Moses Atoli and his shocking crimes that he committed. I also forgot to mention, like, I don't understand why they called him the ABC killer, because... He hardly murdered anyone in Cleveland, I'm just saying. I feel like that was just a ploy to get, like, yeah, a cool nickname, which I don't like the cool nicknames. They they glorify these people. But yes, I forgot to put that in there. Okay, thank you. Bye. Taking it back to the beginning of this piece, he, uh, he is actually a power-oriented killer, and there are very many similarities that are drawn between him and Ted Bundy. He's like the South African Ted Bundy, supposedly. So he was motivated by taking control over his victims as well as his perverted sexual drive. Um, it really is a tragedy, though, that these poor, unfortunate women had to suffer at the hands of him. They were all desperate and, you know, hopeful that they were going to get a new job. And it was they were all lured into this trap under the promise of work. And like I said, he preyed on desperate people. He made them excited and hopeful. And then he took everything from them. And the scary thing is that, like, on that, there was that monster of him. But on the other hand, he really did care for children. Like, he, he really did advocate for the children on the street. He took care of them. So, you know, and everyone said that he was mild-mannered and just one of the nicest guys. So, don't trust people who do nice things. They could still be murderers, is basically what I'm saying. That's my takeaway from this. Let me know what you guys think. I'd really appreciate hearing from you guys. And, uh... I hope that you keep listening, and I hope that you are keen for next for the next episode, which will be... I think I'm going to do another list. I think I'm going to do another set of weird and bizarre deaths, I think. That's what I feel like. But yeah, I'll, I'll keep you guys updated. I uh, really enjoy hearing from you guys, so if you could leave a, a review or a rating or whatever on whatever platform you're on, it really does help um, to get me seen by more people. So that that would be appreciated. Anyway, guys, I hope that you have a good a good time, and I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Like I said, let me know. If you don't like something, tell me. If you like something, freaking tell me. I appreciate it. It would be cool. And yeah, go off into the into the into the the wilderness. Go onward, onward and upward. I say. Okay, bye.